This time on Chew Diligence, Ruby Jeans and Thelma's Kitchen. What we need to have a resilient community is real economic diversity, and we have to have services for everyone. Two restaurants feeding the community in more ways than one. I don't care where you're from, what you look like. There's a commonality between all people, and, you know, that is health. And the legacies of the women behind the names Ruby Jean. I always wanted to honor my grandmother in some way, and I didn't know how that would come. But as I became an adult and got introduced to the world of juicing and just being conscious about what I put in my body, I realized, like, man, this is, this is my life's work. And Thelma. Thelma was a woman who at two in the morning would walk up and down the very block that we're talking about, and she would give away her food at two in the morning to prostitutes and to homeless and to people at the bus stop waiting. Welcome to this episode of Chew Diligence, and congratulations are in order for some of the amazing talent in KC. Jill, we have eight James Beard Awards semifinalists. Pretty wild. That is such a great showing. It really is. Okay, let's read you the list. We have Taylor Petrin from 1900 Barker for Outstanding Baker. I have to try this place in Lawrence. It's really fabulous bread. I have had it, and I just need to show up when they're actually open. Oh, <laughs> ah, right. I always want to go on a Monday. Thing. Yes, <laughs> totally. Outstanding Bar Program goes to the Monarch Bar in Kansas City. Beautiful space, great drinks. Wonderful space. I did a live butterfly release there last year That's with right. Powell Gardens. It's beautiful space. And then Outstanding Chef Colby Geralt's from Blue Stem in Kansas City. Their 15th year this year at Blue Stem. A, uh, yes, a longtime contributor to the community. That is just awesome. And his wife, Megan, uh, Megan Geralt's Outstanding Pastry Chef nominee from Rye. You had her lemon. Delightful. Lemon chiffon pie, right? Every pie she makes. Every pie. And that one is fantastic. Because there's, I think, a little lard in there. (laughs) Makes everything better. We're about to talk about juice, but not yet. More about the pie. It's all about balance, right? Rising Star Chef of the Year semifinalist nominee, Calvin Davis from Freshwater. He is someone to watch. And um, fun little fact, did you know he's the grandson of Rich Davis? Of Casey Masterpiece fame. Wow. Yeah, so not only does he know about fish, but he knows about barbecue. And I love that they have opened again. Yes. Oh, my gosh, the story that restaurant has had. It is uh, back in order. The space is wonderful, and everyone should go check it out. Check them out in Midtown. Yeah. Best Chef Midwest has a great showing. We have Michael Corvino from Corvino Supper Club and Tasting Room, Linda Dewar, the restaurant at 1900 in Mission Woods, and Nicholas Gellner from the Antler Room. I mean, awesome. I've been to all of them. They are definitely exemplary. We're pretty lucky here. Yeah. Great places to eat and drink and try. So if you're looking for an excuse to have a new place to go, check out that list of the... uh, these are the semifinalist nominations. The final nominations come out in March, right? Yeah, it keeps whittling down and whittling down until you get your final, I think it's four or five, and then the winner is announced at a very grand Oscar-like ceremony. I was going to say, is it safe to call these the Oscars of food, Jill? Absolutely. That is the correct analogy. Oscars of food. Okay, now we want to welcome to the podcast studio today our very special guest. We have Chris Good, Ruby Jean's Juicery. Hello. Thank you for having me. Good morning. And we also have Father Justin Matthews from Thelma's Kitchen. Great to be here. We're so glad you guys are here. Welcome. Welcome. Thank you. So we want to talk a little bit about, first, both of you are located, both places very close. 
why did you guys decide to put your restaurants and locations where you did? Um, for me, it was, you know, I, I got the urging from my broker first to say, hey, you know, there's a space and what do you think? And it's, it's ironic because I walked through this space when it was a commissary kitchen just to find a place for us to do our cold pressed juices that we were just going to start doing. So I was looking for just 100 square feet of space that we can set up our juicer. Uh, so that's the first introduction I had to the space. And then my broker said, hey, there's, there's this, you remember that space that you were wanting to juice in? Well, there's an opportunity. And I was kind of hesitant, to be honest with you. I was like, oh, um, hmm, truce. And then it, after I, I prayed on it a little bit, I was like, oh, truce. And it just started flowing and, you know, juice on truce hit my head and the the opportunity to make an impact in a place that my family is from and frequented when I was a kid and to be across from the place where I went to daycare as a low-income family, as a three-year-old, it just, it all started to spark and it started to flow and it started to feel really organic and really good. Um, and to bring that knowledge to that corridor and it's a higher price point item, but to bring the knowledge and energy of something that's healthy in a long-standing food desert, I was like, okay, Chris, this is something that's never been done before in the history of our city. Do it. And that was, the rest is kind of you know, history. History. Yeah. The rest is juice. <laughs> <laughs> Incredible juice. Um, well, you know, uh, Reconciliation Services, which is the uh, parent nonprofit that launched Thelma's Kitchen. Um, we've been there on the corner at 31st and Troost for about 30 years, actually as long as, as the daycare across the street. And um, Thelma's Kitchen, launching last July, was very much an intentional entrepreneurial social venture reinvention of the front door of a 30-year-old social service agency. You know, we serve over 5,200 people a year um, just through our social and trauma therapy services. And for years, over 25 years, we've done a free Friday night community meal. And it was never a soup kitchen. It was always more of a restaurant-like experience. But this um, model that's actually James Beard award-winning, um, the uh, One World Everybody Eats model that we brought here to Kansas City, um, the donate what you can model really is important in the neighborhood that we're in, especially in the time that we're in uh, on Troost with all the development that's happening. Uh, there are positive aspects of that development, and then there are negative aspects of gentrification. And one of the things that's most important is for us to continue to make place for everyone. And so Thomas Kitchen is a gathering place. It's also, you know, an incredible restaurant. We have, I would say, the best three-course lunch in Kansas City on Troost. But we're really there, just to answer your question succinctly, because over 18% of Jackson County suffers from incredibly severe food insecurity. So it's not just a, a food desert, but it's also um, a nutritional, uh, nutritionally insecure place. So you have a lot of working poor families. You have a lot of people that are, that are working, that are not homeless, that have a couple of kids, that are struggling to make ends meet. Um, and they are going to, you know, the fast food chains, and they are spending money. Well, you can go to Ruby Jeans, or you can go to Thelma's Kitchen, and you can get an incredibly healthy meal or an incredibly healthy snack, um, but it's affordable, and that's really the key. 
And both places have food with a mission. Jill, you've eaten at Thelma's. I have, yes. Uh, a friend of mine from the Star, Father Justin, Jen Hack, right. um, invited me to, she said, you got to check this place out. So after a podcast, um, before you went on maternity leave, I can't remember when, <laughs> in the fall, um, I met Jen down there and uh, like, I was just floored. It is a fabulous looking restaurant. I mean... It doesn't look like a soup kitchen in any way, shape, or form. So, you know, I mean, people need to take that right out of their mind. This is a restaurant. It truly is not a soup kitchen. It is not. And it and we've left that model, um, both in terms of the look as well as our mode of operation, um, behind. And, we, you know, as a result, we actually don't get food from the common sort of free reclaimed sources. This is all fresh sourced, locally sourced as often as we can. We're working on developing partnerships with folks who are local growers. Mm. Um, But this is a restaurant. It's just that the model for who gets to come and who can afford this incredible food um, is different than kind of the, the pay model that you would normally have. So let's describe it a little bit. So I walk in and I see the most beautiful table. It's a long communal table made of beautiful wood. I don't know what kind of, you can probably tell me. It's what black tree. walnut, Is actually, black walnut? from my backyard. <laughs> from, oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. When, when we moved in, so the original Reconciliation Services was started out of a house, and that house in the mid-'80s was on Forest Avenue. I live on Forest Avenue right there um, a couple blocks away from Ruby Jeans and, and Reconciliation Services. And uh, we cut down a tree that was going to fall on my house. And instead of turning it into firewood, we turned it into long planks. And then that is our community table, which says a lot about why we're there. It's not just about incredible food, but it's about creating a place of belonging. It's about creating a place where we can have the kind of serendipitous providential moments that only happen when people come together and break bread together. Um, and I think it's probably one of the most diverse restaurants in Kansas City. You might be sitting next to, you know, the other day, uh, Barnett Helsberg was eating lunch, and we were sitting there right next to somebody who I know had just gotten off of off of their, you know, third shift. And then there are people from, you know, the shelters, and there are people who just live in the neighborhood or work at Hallmark. It's literally everybody. And so that community table, when you first come in, is really a symbol of what the whole restaurant's about, food and community. And so I immediately was struck by the table, but first you have to figure out what you want to eat. And there's a, there's a board there with lots of different choices. You want to run us through kind of what how people put together their meal, because there's two sizes. Right. So when you come in, hopefully you get um, greeted by a wonderful volunteer greeter or somebody from the community. (laughs) Good. And they tell you how it works. And they'd say, have you ever been here before? Welcome to Thelma's Kitchen. And you'd say, no, I've never been here. And you'd say, great. Well, here's how it works. You step up to the counter and there are two sizes of plates. There's large and small. And we have a suggested donation size of $10 or $7. Now, we all know that not everybody can afford that. Some people can afford a whole lot more than that. And so some people will donate the suggested amount. Some people donate more. Some people only have a dollar. Some have nothing but they bring themselves and all of their strength. And so we actually allow people to volunteer for 20 or 30 minutes in exchange for the same gift card that I would give you at at the holidays, and nobody can tell the difference, and that gift card is good for one large meal. You can come do that 
every day of the week that we're open. But when you come up to the counter, you choose the size that you want. You don't pay anything. That's all at the end. And you have three choices of fresh cooked meals. Right now, in the oven, I will tell you that there are some incredible cookies that are being made. Yeah, let me describe them from our, if you go to at Thelma's Kitchen, if you are on Instagram, today we've got double chocolate cranberry oatmeal cookies going in the oven right now. So every day, uh, Pamela and Franca, our our world-class chef, is cooking a fresh menu. So the menu changes. But what doesn't change is every day we have um, an incredibly affordable model. We also have incredibly fresh and tasty food. And the last thing is you've always got gluten-free, vegan and vegetarian, sometimes dairy-free options. Because in our neighborhoods, those who can't afford specialty diets also still need them, just like many of us do. And so when you're eating out of a pantry regularly... It's very hard to afford a vegan or vegetarian diet that the doctor might want you to be on. So, you know, this is a little bit like a pumper truck to a skyscraper fire rather than a bucket brigade. And um, so then you would walk through and choose the food that you want that day. And you have the dignity of portion size, the dignity of choice. And then when you get to the end, you have coffee, tea, water, and, and a dessert. So all included. And then it's a donation station, not a cash register. So if we just want you to have a, make a fair exchange. That might be a half hour of your time helping us run the restaurant. It might be $10, might be $2. You decide. Every dollar that comes in, though, helps to support all of the work that we're doing in our trauma therapy and urgent care services and the rest of our programs at Reconciliation Services. So you opened in July, is that correct, or the summertime? Yeah, we opened in July 2018. Okay, so you've had a little bit of time. Are people good for it? Are they giving what they can give? Oh, it's amazing. You know, to be honest with you, you know, Chris is an incredible entrepreneur could tell you, you never quite know what you're going to get. Like when you open Ruby Jeans, I'm sure you didn't know, you know, was it going to be over the top or was it going to be crickets? (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, you just put everything you can into it and hope that the return is just as genuine as what you put in. Yeah, but your heart's into it. And so when we opened, just like at Ruby Jeans, you know, it was all heart all day getting it going. And we spent about a year and a half doing a listening campaign with our neighbors and our clients to make sure we understood what would make it a place that they would want to come as well as, you know, the folks that had resources. So when we opened, we didn't know if we would have anybody, but we were surprised. Literally the first day we served over 115 people. And it has stayed that busy, you know, an average of 100 to 120 a day, Monday through Friday, every day since we've opened. 60% of the people who come in pay something, and about 40% exchange um, their time. And so you have an incredibly diverse group of folks that come in. um, But, you know, like any social venture or restaurant, you need to make money in order to actually accomplish your mission. And I'm very, very blessed and thankful that we are. We're, we're positively cash flowing. It's not all being subsidized uh, by, you know, outside sources. The thing really is working just like a real restaurant. It's just that the pay model is different and everybody gets to eat. I love that. Um Chris, tell us a little bit about your business model and who your customers are. Are they the same? Are they the Thelma's folks as well, or do you have a slightly different? 
I think take a, on that? a portion of them are the same customer. Um, some of those employees that, that work in that corridor, whether it be at the school district or the health department or Hallmark nearby, um, we see those those same employees. Um, our place has become sort of a destination. And so people will come, especially on the weekend, they'll come as far from Olathe or Blue Springs and they want to be a part of, you know, what we've built there and why we've built it there more importantly. Um, so I, it, it makes it hard for marketing sake. Um, you know, I was telling Lindsay because our population is just as diverse as this, the, the population that, you know, he speaks of. And we may not get as many of the, you know, those people that can work for their food um, population, but we we created a truce meal to try and bridge that div- that divide because we want to be sensitive to the community. I mean, I'm I'm from that community. I'm I am that kid that you know that lived in that community and went to school in that community. And my grandmother worked at Superior Linen around the the corner in that community. So we want to be sensitive to that place, um, but also bring a sense of understanding of knowledge of what you should be putting in your body no matter what the price point and taking that switching that narrative of you know if you can go to gates and and i hate to say gates i love the gates family but if you can go to mcdonald's um and you know spend seven bucks on a a value meal or whatever it is take that seven bucks and put it into something that's going to benefit your life it's going to benefit your body it's going to it's going to enhance every single thing in your life. So we get a very diverse customer base. Uh, we do get people to, you know, for our truce meal, we've gotten a lot of people to pay it forward. Mm. So, hey, if, if somebody comes in and they don't, they can't afford what you guys sell, you know, this is for them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've been getting that a lot more lately. And having Thelma's up the street, it just it creates a, a grand sense of community. Something special is going on in that area. Uh, I think something special is going on in the entire city, hmm. um, but we we get to be a, a bright spot on truce, and then I'm I'm just blessed to be a part of you know the change that's happening, what Father Justin and his team are doing over at Thelma's. I'm just excited to be a part of it. I think it's important that we have both Thelma's Kitchen and Ruby Jeans and other models. Um, like, uh, you know, you would find at a more traditional uh, soup kitchen. Because what we need to have a resilient community is real economic diversity. And we have to have services for everyone. And so, you know, some days, um, Ruby Jeans, I, I've gone over there multiple times just to kind of get away. And they have incredible, incredible juices. I do a morning workout. So sometimes I like to go in and, you know, grab a little power shake and 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 that's the way I kick off my day um, but I also love just being able to walk downstairs uh, from my office at reconciliation services into Thelma's kitchen and just sit at the table and you never know what you're gonna get you know it's like Forrest Gump like you never know what you're gonna get you know <laughs> like you sit at that table and you might sit next to you know Mr. Hellsberg you might sit next to Chris you might sit next to somebody who you would never sit next to in your life. But you can actually experience that anywhere on Troost that is open and has a similar mindset. I think that Chris and I share a very common mindset, even if our business models are similar yet divergent, as they should be. He's a for-profit company running an incredible entrepreneurial effort that should be supported. We also are running a business, but it's a different model. And so as a result, there's, there's strength in both of those models. And I think that the more we can embrace that in the food community, 
the more we can be intentional about that. We can see diversity uh, economically and racially and otherwise as a superior growth model for the region. And that, sustainable. Sustainable, right. And we need both. You need Thelma's, you need Ruby Jeans. You need both of them. And I, let's talk a little bit about uh, the women for which each are named, starting with Ruby Jeans. By the way, the sweet potato brownie. I forgot to take a picture of it for Instagram. <laughs> it was so good. I devoured it. Yeah, it's pretty. I like it, too. <laughs> <laughs> it's delightful. Uh, talk about Ruby Jean. So uh, Ruby Jean is my late grandmother. Um, when... And it everything centers around her. So you walk in, you see a huge, you know, picture of her face. Before you even walk in, you see her face. Um, you know, she's every tattoo is about her. So you know, my grandmother was a, just a very, very impactful person in my life. Um, dad wasn't around early on, and mom, four kids, and grandmother was a, a very, very huge component for us. Uh, so she lived just up the street. We lived right off of, of Prospect, and. She she almost was like a second mother, and she was very sweet and meek and just so genuine, and she was a, a woman of very few words. She didn't say much. She would give you a look, and you knew, okay, I'm going to sit down. Like, I, <laughs> I know what's next after that look. Um, so she was just a very important person for us, and I have just these grand, fond memories of, of my grandmother. And when I was 14, um, she fell quickly ill with type 2 diabetes. And for me as a 14-year-old, it was just, you know, oh, grandma's sick, you know. But as I became an adult, I figured out what really was going on. And in that moment, she got sick, and it went really, really fast. And she was one of those people that, I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't want to do all that. So it it was a very aggressive transition for her. And so when we knew she was going to pass, they transferred her from Truman Medical Center over to St. Luke's to just give her one last shot. Um, she ended up on life support, and my great-grandmother traveled up from Muskogee, Oklahoma, to say goodbye to her, and she goes into the the, um, the hospital room with her, and you got me talking about this. Um, so she goes into the hospital room with her, and um, <clears throat> she says that, that has that final embrace with her. My great-grandmother comes out to the waiting room with us, has a massive heart attack, and dies. So I watch oh, my, my great-grandmother take her last breath, so it's just like everything slowed down. Doctors are rushing in and, you know, um, and then two days later we took Ruby Jean off of life support. So in that moment, I'm 14 and it, it's something, it's a chip I carried on my shoulder forever. So, and I was a football player. So every, every time I did something well on the football field, I was like, okay, that's for you, grandma. Like I'm pointing to the sky, like grandma, that's for you. And I always wanted to honor my grandmother, both of them, but mainly Ruby Jean in some way. And I didn't know how that would come. But as I became an adult and got introduced to the world of juicing and just being conscious about what I put in my body, I realized like, man, this is, this is my life's work. You know, I want to, like, I just had a son and he didn't get to meet my grandmother. And I want that to not be the story for other young kids, whether they're from the inner city or, you know, go to Blue Valley. I don't care where you're from, what you look like. There's a commonality between all people. And, you know, that is health. And that that is what drives me. And it's bringing diversity around the, the message of health. It doesn't have to, it shouldn't always be in Leewood. It shouldn't always be in wherever. It can be. That's great. But it should be everywhere. It should be accessible to everybody. And I want to use our pain and the longing for my grandmother and make that story 
you know, make make it more commonplace for people to want to be healthy, for people to say, you know what, I don't have to have a six-pack already to go in the gym. I'm going to go in the gym, you know, or I don't have to be intimidated to go into Whole Foods. I want to be healthy. And so if we can use our grandmother, you know, the matriarch of our family and her demise of never understanding what to put in her body, that contradiction to break down the veils of health in just a small way, starting in Kansas city. And that's, that's what we do. And, you know, I, my grandmother, she was a shy woman. So I, her face is everywhere now. And she's probably like, you know, I'm sitting here with her on my sweater. She's probably I, like, I, I was going to say, like, <laughs> I'm looking at her right now. <laughs> so that's, that's who Ruby Jean was. Um, that is the, the passion that lives in our brand. And that's what, I think that's what sets, I know that's what sets us apart. There's juice bars. There have been juice bars and they, they're from corner, every corner of the world, they're right. juice bars. But we exist for that reason and we want to, we want to share that story so people will say, hey, you know, maybe, you know, everybody has a Ruby Jean in their family. Mm. I don't care what color you are, how many zeros you have in your bank account, where you live, none of it matters. There's a Ruby Jean in everybody's family. There's an aunt, a cousin, a sister, somebody that, needs the message of hey I, maybe i should i should be healthier so that's that's who we are that's As, who she was have you seen light bulbs come on in customers because they realize they have that ruby gene and they you know absolutely i mean we get a lot of people and that's my goal is to just tell our story as much as possible i, I speak in schools more than i can count i want to tell people this her story who she was because if you can connect to our why then you understand why we exist right and it will give you a like oh well you know, that's her face is on the building. I can go in there. She never had a juice in her life. So, yeah, I, we get a lot of people. We get cancer patients. We get um, a lot of blood pressure, a lot of diabetes people that are saying, hey, I heard your story, and uh, I just wanted to come try it out. So we want to be the company that goes down in history of having the most first-time juicers ever. The people that are still eating Popeyes, still drinking soda every day, still going to McDonald's, I want those people to say, I'm going to try it because we, I gave away, we gave away 11 gallons of juice at, at 3907 Wabash from her old home, right? Just street off prospect. And we were getting people to come by and they're like, we're like free juice. And they're like, well, like Hawaiian, what kind of juice? You got Hawaiian punch or, you know, like what, <laughs> what kind of juice? So it, yeah, you yeah. know, it's, it's a, you know, we kind of told the line of passion and passion versus profit and having to keep the lights on. So there's, you know, there's a lot of social um, interest in what we do. So, And you guys are a bright spot in so many ways. I mean, the, when you see your location on Troost, it is colorful yeah. and beautiful. And, yeah. y you know, it, was that part of it, too? Yeah, I mean, I lived in so I lived in Los Angeles for a couple of years and I, you know, I was just really heavy in the juice scene and they have a different culture and they use color and it's it's more alive. And a lot of times, and you know, no offense to any other juice bar, they're they're great, but for whatever reason, juice bars are like really, you know, like chic and like you know, like very minimalist, yeah, right? like very HGTV. Where's like, my yoga mat? Yeah, and I, I'm like, no, the juice, the beets are red, the cucumber is green, and so one of our hashtags is drinking color, and it's you know, there's life in those in those fruits and vegetables, and we wanted that to be represented in our brand in every way. So you know, I. Orange is my favorite color, too. So it just works. Can I ask real quick, because I'll see you post about, you've had some pretty influential folks pop in who have, oh, you know, just a million Instagram followers or so. What is that like, and who has been in? Oh, it's, I don't know. Every time it happens, I'm <laughs> I'm never there, A. 
<laughs> um, the CEO of Sprint popped in one Saturday. Uh, he and his daughter came in. Uh, Lecrae, this like really big gospel uh, Christian rapper, came in. Angela Rice, she's a very she's a social activist. She was just in. Um, we've had a, a bunch of different people, a lot of athletes, and it's it's always organic. So that's the best feeling for me. I'm not like reaching out to their publicists and like, hey, can we do this? And that to me, that's the best feeling because that's what we want to be for Kansas City. There's a, it's a great barbecue town. It's a great mm. meat and potatoes town. There's so much good food. But we want to be that balance to say, okay, you had, you know, you ate that way for this amount of time. Come try something that that will put life in your body. And we want to be a part of the fabric of Kansas City to create change, to make it a healthier place, a more diverse, welcoming, inclusive place. And when I walk in there, I see so many fruits and vegetables. Mm. And you see it going into the blender, which I have to say a lot of juicing places you don't really see. You just get handed a cup. And so I was watching and I'm like, oh, my God, a whole tub went into (laughs) my blender, a whole tub of vegetables. That is Amazing. It is. And I think that you get that sense. I've I've done a lot of reporting on food deserts. Lindsay, you've probably done some too. And a lot on obesity over the last two decades. Those two are coming together and suddenly uh, we've got redevelopment and you're looking at something kind of hopeful in this area because for the longest time there was not very many good food sources, certainly not many many grocery stores. Now there's the fresh. Um, Yeah. And so we're making some progress here and it's it's... Yeah. It's really good to see. It is. It is. And, and being, you know, frequenting the area and being that kid that was just across the street as a three-year-old, 31 years later, seeing the transition, seeing Thelma's kitchen and seeing the smiles and bright faces and the passion and, and dignity that those people come in and leave with, it's just, man, hmm. I, I feel like, you know, I feel like I'm sitting here next to Father Justin, like, we'll look back on this. You know, I want my son to look back and be like, you know, my dad was a part of something that that actually mattered, you know, and that's that's what it boils down to. If people can have that dignity to go to go in Thelma's and they may have a dollar but still have a honorable experience, that's awesome. If people can come in Ruby Jeans and say, I don't know what juice is and it scares me, what is that? But then they like it and they're like, Wow, I just had an entire cucumber and it tastes good and I hate <laughs> vegetables. It's something special. You know, the other important thing, though, Chris, I would add is that I I don't know where I heard this, but I love the saying, you can't be what you can't see. You cannot be what you can't see. And so when you talk about dignity, it's not only the dignity of, you know, can I choose? Can I come in? Am I welcome? Belonging, network, all of those are important things. But we need to have in that in the community that for generations that you grew up in has been intentionally neglected or intentionally um, redlined, all of those histories, right? Because we can't talk about what we're talking about and all the good without also getting into how we got there, which is a whole nother podcast. But what I love is that that you are from the neighborhood and you are so successful because my sons and your son and everyone else in the community needs to see not just social service agencies and free daycares. They need to see entrepreneurs and families and people like you who have sacrificed and made it because you can't be what you can't see. And when you come into Thelma's, I think it's the same kind of thing. You you get to sit next to people who are very different than you. Now, if you've come from a lot of resources, you also need to remember how privileged 
you are. And I remember when you talk about food desert and food access, when I first moved east of Troost, because I didn't grow up there, I grew up in Kansas, in Prairie Village, and grew up in Kansas City, so I had a very different upbringing. Um, I remember when I moved with my little guys uh, in 2011, 2012 on the east side and just waking up one morning and go, I got to drive all the way to Westport to get some milk for the cereal this morning mm-hmm. unless I want to go into the like little sketchy, you know, beer store on the corner where the milk is $2 more. Right. And it hit me like a ton of bricks. Now I have a car. I don't have to go sit in the cold in the ice and wait for the bus to come, right? And, I mean, just the things that I hope our patrons experience when they come, on, on whether whichever side of truce you grew up on, right? The fact is we all have a truce that runs down the middle of our heart. There's always somebody on the other side of truce. And even when truce is all redone... <laughs> Which is coming. Quickly. Quickly. Hmm. And there's good and bad. Again, there is good and bad. That's another podcast. But we're, Truce is still going to be a symbol or an icon of both the potential and the success of of uh, what's possible in Kansas City, but also of times when we didn't get it right, both past and present. And um, Thelma, for me, is really an icon of somebody who was there struggling, and when there wasn't anything, there weren't even social services when she came up. Thelma, who is who we're named after, um, Thelma grew up in the segregated part of Texarkana, Arkansas. Um, she's an African, she was an African American woman who um, had a very, very rough childhood, and at seven years old, she moved up to Kansas City, and uh, her family life was hard. She ended up raising her siblings from the time she was about eight years old. She lived in the old LaSalle apartments that were off of uh, Linwood that are torn down now. And in the 80s, when there was supposed to be this trickle, trickling down, um, well, it wasn't trickling to the LaSalle apartments, and the people that were living there with her, by and large, were really, really suffering and really hungry. And in fact, um, one of our co-founders, Thelma, and her husband, uh, Father Alexi, uh, who at the time was named David before he was an Orthodox priest, um, he remembers going in and uh, probably like 86, he went into uh, Mother Esther's, there was a woman who lived there named Mother Esther, he went into her apartment and she had nothing but a can, a little tiny can of pork and beans and some white bread and, and then a bunch of grandkids and family. And that was supposed to last them for at least a couple weeks until she was going to get paid or, I mean, and this was before there was, you know, everything was there in terms of social services. This is before all the free, you know, charitable stuff that was there. People are still very hungry. But Thelma, the reason that she's such an inspiration, is not only is she our founder, but, you know, Thelma was a woman who at 2 in the morning would walk up and down the very block that we're talking about, and she would give away her food at 2 in the morning to prostitutes and to homeless and to people at the bus stop waiting. She had a one-bedroom apartment, and she was raising her family there. She would bring people into her one-bedroom apartment who were homeless in the wintertime and let them sleep on her living room floor. And this is just a woman who, if you look up in the dictionary, Saint, you know, you should see a picture of Ruby Jean and Thelma, you know? And um, 
Thelma's Kitchen really harkens back to our very foundation, which all started in Thelma's Kitchen. And um, her house, once she got married to uh, David, who was literally her polar opposite, she was from, you know, Texarkana, Arkansas, which the white folks called the dump back then. She 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 was from the, the segregated part of Arkansas, moved up here. I don't know that she finished eighth grade. I'm not sure. But she really struggled economically and in every other way her whole life. Uh, her husband, David Alshul, was was very opposite. You know, he was white. He was from Leewood. He had, you know, college degree and was pretty successful. But through a providential story that you can read about on our website, rs3101.org, um, they ended up falling in love and they got married against all odds, these two people. And so what I love about Thelma is that she totally embodied in her life that love for the community and prioritizing a life lived with a vision of reconciliation. She lived it personally in her life, giving away what she had to share. Remember the old story of stone soup? We each put into the pot what we have. Yeah. That was like her whole life. Hmm. Like, I'll put in what I've got. I've only got this pot. What do you have? You know, somebody put in this, a little water, a little carrots. Next thing you know, you have a meal, you know, for a bunch of people. And Thelma was there, you know, stoking the fire. And then she lived this vision of, of what's possible in terms of racial and economic reconciliation. Because not only just of, of her marriage and, and what she and David went through, the suffering that they went through, you know, as an interracial couple in the 80s and all, the, all that they went through on truce, but she had such a prayerful heart. She believed in impossible dreams. And if there's one thing about reconciliation services in Thelma's Kitchen that, that I, that I want to hope like pervades our culture is this idea that we have to believe in impossible dreams. We have to believe that an impossible dream of racial and economic reconciliation is possible, even in our current climate. We have to believe that truce can be, um, you know, uh, this place that is not a dividing line, but it's also not just super swanky and gentrified and, and that we have to believe in the impossible dream, that we can do development without displacement, that we can actually pursue a do-no-harm development strategy where people like Thelma and Ruby Jean and people, you know, like whoever else would come are all welcome. And it's going to take places, a lot of different places and a lot of different voices. But Thelma believed in those impossible dreams and she was somebody who lived it. She didn't just talk about it. She lived it with her own little one bedroom apartment. And then eventually in the founding with her husband, David Alshult, now Father Alexi, who's a Orthodox Christian monk now, because Thelma passed away in 2012. Um, they, their marriage was the forge of the, the DNA for what became Reconciliation Services and Thelma's Kitchen. And now ultimately, you know, my life's work and um, my children and where, where we are raising our kids and then for so many others. Um, our focus, I guess this is the last thing I would say, following Thelma's um, example, our focus is not really just serving like one group of people. You cannot pursue a vision of reconciliation unless you have both sides of the community at the table. So we've got to be breaking bread, rich and poor, black and white, east and west, you know, <laughs> Republican and Democrat. You know, we all got to sit at one table and we have to actually listen to each other and begin to know each other's family stories. When you hear the story of Ruby Jean, when you hear the story of Thelma, you're hearing the story of Kansas City. And there are a lot of people in Kansas City that don't know those stories. 
And um, hearing those voices uh, is an important work for us as a city. Absolutely. It is so, I mean, to truly understand what you hear and what you think when you hear the word truce in Kansas City, that has been a racially dividing line, an economic dividing line going back decades, a century. Are we having a moment or are we having the start of something that is going to last? I think it's the start of something that will last. Um, and it. I guess I say that based on more of a, a energy that I feel when I'm I'm in those walls, when I'm driving up that street and I've been, you know, I've been around that street for many years. Um, so I think it's, it's very sustainable and it, it takes, you know, social endeavors, you know, such as Thelma's and, and the good that they're doing and entrepreneurial endeavors that we're doing and everything in between for it all to come together. And it, you know, as much as gentrification is, you know, there's like a black eye on it. It takes some gentrification, and I, I'll say that comfortably. It takes that to some extent, and Father Justin may disagree with me, but it takes a, a healthy amount of progress, you know, for things to to evolve and evolve in a healthy way. But it should it should include everybody, and I think that's what that's where Thelmus comes in, and that's where you know our truce mill at Ruby Jeans and the mission of what we're doing. It all it's like there's this connective tissue between these these big multi-million dollar projects that there has to be some heart in it. And if there's no, if there's only green, then it won't be sustainable. But if there's heart in it, if there's Thelma's and there's Ruby jeans and that to me, that's the heart of what's happening in that corridor. And I, I mean, it's, it's just a blessing just to have the opportunity for me. So I take it very seriously and take it as a responsibility to always, how, how do, how do we, how am I more sensitive to the community how do I educate more? How do what schools do I need to speak in to talk to a kid that was just like me going to that free daycare? How do we do that work? Because it's the kids, if we're not talking to the children of the community that are in the schools that are walking the streets, then we're we're kind of I think we're missing the mark. And that to me, I think it, it is sustainable because it, it's happening. I want to say that I, I think it's important to know that we actually don't disagree okay, good. at all. I mean, <laughs> I think I think on the negative side, gentrification is, and we're going to come right back to food, but gentrification <laughs> is really a process of, of redevelopment that, that would prioritize uh, progress over people in the negative sense. If we use gentrification in a more generic sense, kind of a vernacular sense, what it simply refers to is redevelopment. And, and you know, um, that's a loaded weaponized word. And so I try to use it, you know, in a very sparing way. What I would say, though, is that, you know, Thelma's Kitchen is not a soup kitchen. It is not a even a nonprofit um kind of social work in that sense. Reconciliation Services does lots of that. But Thelma's Kitchen is bringing together the best of business, faith, and philanthropy for social good. It's a social venture. It's social entrepreneurship. It's a restaurant. It's a restaurant, right. So, And so often restaurants are really, you look all around the country, restaurants are going into neighborhoods that were not, not desirable, not popular, and they're bringing people in that might not have ever gone to those neighborhoods. And so I sort of see that happening. What other ventures would you like to see in the Troost area to support what you guys are doing and to bring in, to Chris's point, you got to bring in people from all over and you got to let a little gentrification happen because 
that's how we become like the whole city circulating all through the city and not a dividing line, which I will say back in the 80s when I moved here, somebody took a highlighter and told me where the dividing line was and where, you know, we should be looking for homes. Yeah. We've got to get away from that. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we, I think we are getting away from that, mm-hmm. um, you know, currently. I think it's, it's still happening in some ways. But um, what I would like to see more of, and I think the folks at the Truce Market Collective are are putting together something to this this extent, but a, a fresh market. And I'm, I'm everything I talk about is going to be more geared towards: is it healthy? Is it good for you? Is it going to benefit your body when you when you put it in your mouth? Is it is it doing any good for you? Um, so I think a a fresh market you know, in that area and they're working on it. I've heard rumors of it in different meetings, but a fresh market, I think it would be a big component for that corridor. Um, just for the, the energy of it, the the foot traffic and then it's healthy, it's fresh produce. Um, so that's, that's what I would like to see. Yeah. I'd, I'd love to see on a, on a very practical level, I'd love to see some more parking <laughs> down wow. there for all of us, to be honest, you know, you can't run a retail operation and, and frankly, um, Ruby Jeans and Thelma's Kitchen are the first retail operations on these two blocks. And I don't know how many decades. And so, you know, it, it's pretty momentous, uh, to see that kind of work happening. I think one of the things that we need in the community right there is for, um, people to leave behind their past assumptions, because look, we can talk about Trista's dividing line all day long. The reality is Trista is also a home. You know, Chris grew up there. I was just with a group of school kids talking to them about our work at Reconciliation Services in Thomas Kitchen, and I went around the room, as I often do, and I said, okay, raise your hand and tell me the first word that comes to mind when you say truce. And I got all the standard answers until one kid, who actually was Caucasian, with a tear in his eye, real sheepishly said his word wasn't whatever you would expect. His word was home. And I just, like, my my jaw just about dropped because I thought, God, you know, how often are we, even in our attempt to talk about fixing things or bringing things, how, how often am I still reinforcing by always talking about dividing line, dividing line? So it's an interesting side jump. What we really need to do, I think, for places like Ruby Jeans and Thelma's Kitchen to really thrive is for people to uh, begin to venture into Kansas City with fresh eyes begin to have conversations with people in the community with open ears and uh, come get some amazing juice, come get some unbelievable lunch. You know, Monday through Friday, we're open from 11 to 2 every day at Thomas Kitchen. And what are your hours? When are you all open? So we're open 7.30 until 5.30, uh, Monday through Thursday. And then we close at 4 on Friday. And then we're 9 a.m. to 4 p.m. on Saturdays. And we'll open again on Sundays here once the once this uh, winter, this fun winter we've had in <laughs> Kansas ever, City gets behind oh us. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, you had to think about, I was, we were talking in this earlier, Chris, about how you're an option. You're keeping up with keto meals, paleo meals. <laughs> yeah, it, it's it's a lot. I mean, it, especially in this, in this climate, um, we're still in a underdeveloped health market, if you will, uh, for lack of a better term, you know, we're still kind of behind the curve. Uh, Kansas city as a whole, Kansas city as a whole. So we do a lot of educating. Like I said, we just telling, you know, when I say people ask, what do you do? Well, you know, I own a juice bar and they're like, well, 
juice. What do you what do you mean juice? You know, and so there's this there's this understanding gap that we're still trying to cover. So when all these trends come down from a health market, uh, whether it was from this documentary or this book or this celebrity or whatever it is, we try not to chase them as much, but we mm. try to be sensible to what we feel is needed. And to me, that's having a healthy balance. You know, we don't we're not we're not the place where you come and you just expect to eat one piece of romaine lettuce, two carrots, and right. a couple peas. <laughs> no, we, we want to be realistic and, you know, kind of cover the spectrum of where you are as a as a healthy person. And whether you've never heard of juice, okay, we have something, a smoothie that can we can kind of introduce you to this world. Or if you juice every day, okay, well, we have all beets and ginger specifically for you because that's all you want. So we, we try to cover that entire gamut and not – chase the trends too much but just keep it genuine and and truly focused on being good for and there really aren't that like there's my clean eats meal i had and i went to see you quinoa seasoned ground turkey sauteed veggies and goddess sauce goddess sauce yeah. if you're trying to be good monday through friday before your treats there's an option well yes. and i just recently had the slugger um <laughs> like how awesome is that and, and it boils down to it has to taste good doesn't it yes i mean we can talk forever about changing the world of food but if it doesn't taste good and it doesn't nourish you and it doesn't do good things for your body, ultimately, mm. you we, know, we can't you, get to those last two if it doesn't taste good. Right. right? We make, and that's so a lot of decisions that I make is just based on my tongue, you know, like, oh, that's terrible. We probably shouldn't do that, you know, and and we do have some of those things that I'll be honest, they just don't taste good. But there's this <laughs> what, what's the juice people are asking for now? Celery juice. That's it. C- pure celery juice like what so we sell we have celery so if you yeah. want a pure <laughs> celery juice we can make it for you but it won't it won't hit our menu that's like the latest craze is you know celery juice and it's got a, a lot of amazing properties but it's something that won't be talked about again in you know middle of summer you know this work actually getting health healthy food access whether it's ruby jeans or at thelma's kitchen is actually life-saving there's a you can go on to the website and see there's a story of a man named paul who came in literally the week we opened paul's um, in his mid-50s african-american and a veteran and he's been on dialysis for over 780 days he's been waiting for a long time he came in to thelma's kitchen that first week or two that we opened and because the food was awesome and because he could afford it he was able to come in literally four or five times a week. He came in, maybe it was about three months ago now, and he was waving a piece of paper with a big sticker on it that was something from the doctor. And he came in and he said, Father Justin, you'll never guess what. He goes, I just got my blood work back. And the doctor put a gold star and a sticker on the top of it and said that I've got, you know, super healthy now. And the doctor said, what did you change, Paul? And he goes, I've just been eating healthy at Thelma's Kitchen. Right? (laughs) That's incredible. Yeah, I mean... Paul now has, he's now actually because his health has improved, right? People who get healthy by going to Thelma's and Ruby's and who are having now access to that transformational diet, when you, when you get that, now Paul's actually able to move to the next step and move towards actually having the transplant that's going to save his life. Wow. But it all starts with having a place, making it a priority, mm-hmm. making it affordable, and doing the hard work of the entrepreneurial work of, you know, making this healthy food accessible and incredibly tasty. Because if we put out terrible food, Paul would never come back, right? Right. right. I had right. the vegan patty, not okay. because I'm vegan. I'm not. 
I like barbecue, but um, it was good. It was really, really good. And that I wanted to taste it just to see what it's like. And it's a, a lentil vegan patty. Yeah, Pam, our good chef. for me. Pam, our chef, is incredible. You should, you should do a whole story just on her story because her, her grandfather actually owned a market at 27th and Troost called Frank's Market way back in the day. He was um, Italian, and a lot of people still remember Frank's Market who've been around the community for a long time. But Pamela is a self-taught foodie who is an incredible chef. It was the best interview process I've ever done, which was to do the final round interviews for the chef for Thelma's Kitchen. I've never started a restaurant before now. <laughs> When she cooked her famous potato shredded potato uh, soup, it was like hands down. The interview was over. That was Art. awesome. Too. It yeah. was over. Yeah. yeah. It's decadent. It's good. You feel comforted, and yet you feel like you're eating food that's good for you. You know, it's that great balance between comfort food and good nutrition. You said something earlier, like we're talking about all these deeper issues. You go get back to the food in a second. I think this is all about food. All of these issues root in that. When you said there hadn't been another retail operation in decades on your corners, and they're both food, mm-hmm. what is it about beyond you need food to survive every day? Beyond that, what is it about food that draws people from all over that can help this keep going? I mean, I, I, I'm an Orthodox Christian priest, right? So Jesus always did his best teaching while breaking bread and telling a story. And so there's something about eating together and sharing stories that's transformational um, and that the, the very act of breaking bread means that you begin to build friendship with people. And so that, for me, that's what's so powerful. And when we build strong relationships and friendships, those can lead to the deeper things. Yeah, and I, th- I think it's the, you know, eating is a, a fundamental premise of all of our lives. We have to eat. We have to. Um, and for me, when we decided to to make the move to Truce, it was it was a statement of, OK, we're primarily a juice bar. So we do juice and smoothies. But in order to give people opportunity to gather, to want to come and meet, we have to add that component of food. And that's what we brought to Truce. When we, we never had food until we had Truce. So it's Ruby Jean's Kitchen and Juicery for that purpose. Uh, and it. You know, it allows people to come hang out. It's different than I, I worked in our downtown store this morning, and it's more of a, you know, I, hey, I, I'm on a quick lunch break. I'm going to come in and get something quick. Truce is more of a it's a gathering place. It's a it's a meeting place. It's, oh, my friend is in here, and I didn't even, I look up an hour later, and, oh, God, I got to get going. So it's one of those places It just it kind of draws you in, uh, and you feel good about you know, you're you're at thirtieth and truth drinking a slugger, you know, or <laughs> just blueberries, oats, peanut butter, uh, almond, milk, almond milk, yeah. Banana. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's one of my favorites. Um so to drink a slugger at thirtieth and truth is to me is historic and I think people like it. I think it's pretty cool. If you just look at the two people, you guys have done a great job putting together this podcast. If you just look at the the two of us sitting here, we both come from either side of truth. We both are running brand new restaurants that have this intentionality behind community building and health. And we both are attempting with our lives and our work to honor great women who are heroes in the African-American community in Kansas City, who are examples of what's possible for all of us. I just think it's, it's a powerful symbol to have uh, the two of us and to have Ruby Jeans and Thelma's Kitchen kind of right across the street from one another, says something greater than the sum of the parts. For sure, for sure. 
I don't think we can do any better than that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much summed it up there, Father Justin. You guys, that's how Jill and I feel. It starts with the food and it goes way beyond the plate. Thanks, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you so much. It's an honor. We'll see you next time on Chew Diligence. Bye.